The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Everybody to the politics, politics, politics program for Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. A lot to go over on the program today. A bipartisan Senate panel on the 1-6 riots, the January 6th scrum at the Capitol, uh, what does it say? What does it mean for a possibility of a further House Select Committee? We will go over that. Also, in preparation for our big trip out to New York City to cover this mayoral race, we've got an update on a very specific issue. Something that I have found very fascinating. The fact that the two front runners in this mayoral race are centrist is interesting, but the fact that the polling front runner, the current polling front runner, out and out attacked Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez this weekend tells itself a story. And we are going to have a great conversation with Michael Cohen. Not that Michael Cohen. It's not that Michael Cohen. Don't worry. But he is the author of a brand new book, Modern Political Campaigns. And this is a very X's and O's blocking and tackling. How do you get people elected by getting people in a booth and having them press your button over the other guys? We talk about volunteers, uh, uh, the, the, the comparisons between a campaign and a startup. I had a great time talking with uh, uh, MC. We, we very rapidly start calling him MC because uh, no one needs to deal with, you know, the fact that there's another very famous Michael Cohen in politics. All that. But first. Two days after the January 6th riot in the Capitol, the Senate Committee on Rules and Administration and Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee announced a joint bipartisan oversight investigation to examine the intelligence and security failures that led to the attack. On Tuesday, that report was released. So, what did it say? Well, it found that as far back as December, national intelligence outlets were gathering data about some citizens coming to D.C. to quote-unquote go to war. Crucially and critically, that information was not relayed to the Capitol Police. Similarly, and this I found to be shocking, the Department of Defense was sensitive to the idea that they would be looking over-militarized in their securing of the Capitol because they felt they had gotten so much bad press during that very hectic summer of Black Lives Matter and George Floyd-related protests. So think about that for a second. The idea that the press garnered by the 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 
you know, uh, uh, un, unmarked uh, uh, officers that uh, you didn't know what agency or what what military force they were from. They were just Homeland Security officers. Uh, uh, that, that that was something during the Black Lives Matter protests that the Department of Defense was so annoyed about that they had gotten bad press for that they were like, we're not going to put that amount of effort into this January 6th thing. That's crazy. That is That, to me, is very telling. It is very telling that that, that even factors in to the, 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 the Department of Defense, although I guess the more I think about it, the more it shouldn't. Now, that side of the equation seems to put a lot of the blame on the FBI, the CIA, and, and Homeland Security. And indeed, the Capitol Police, who bore obviously the biggest brunt of a failure like this, do not have their own intelligence gathering. They rely on national intelligence gathering to tip them off on what they should and shouldn't be doing. But that does not mean that the Capitol Police were unscathed in this report. Indeed, the Capitol Police were both underprepared and hamstrung. For example, the Capitol Police chief cannot unilaterally in the moment call for reinforcements by the National Guard. They have to submit a request to the board for an approval. Uh, they also quite simply did not deploy the right officers to the places where they should be. They should have been equipped for a riot in case one happened. And they should have been ready to disperse it in a place that wasn't the inside of the Capitol while there was important business to the nation being conducted. Now, for me, in reading this report, and it's online, I would encourage you to read at least the executive summary. This answered some questions for me because the Biggest lingering questions I had about January 6th was like, all right, I would not have been shocked if the Black Lives Matter crowd had been allowed closer access to the Capitol, that they probably would have done something similar. Not to say that they would have disrupted the the lawful machinations of government, but if you wanted a big splashy place for which your message would be heard louder than treading the halls of a sacred uh, DC institution would be one of them. It's the reason why there was so much protection around monuments and stuff like that during the summer. So my biggest question was how sway, how were the, uh, 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 how how were the protesters allowed there? And I do think that it it does arise an element of suspicion of like, okay, you know, not to get all conspiratorial. But was it an inside job? Are there members of the Capitol Police that were very sympathetic to this cause? Or at the very least, not willing to go out of their way to stop it as it began to spiral out of control? Those are my main questions. And, and, and look, this committee did not look into the motivations of why people were showing up or the connection to the Trump rally. And... I'm fine with another committee going in and, and looking into that specifically. I personally find it slightly less interesting. Like, I'd be curious to hear if a gigantic, big smoking gun comes out of such an investigation. But I, I tend to find it less likely to be that level of illuminating compared to something like this. When there is a security breakdown like this, I I, I tend to default. And this, these are my priors. So... Uh, uh, you know, they can be confirmed or denied. But this usually happens because there's a communication breakdown and somebody didn't do their job or file the right paperwork as compared to 
there was a top-down plan to make this happen from the highest levels of government. That's just my, my sense of it. And so this particular bipartisan committee, to me, was particularly illuminating. So the question now becomes, what is Nancy Pelosi's next play? Because part of the reason that Republicans killed the 9-11 style commission into January 6th was because they said there were already parallel and duplicatory investigations into the matter. And they pointed to this committee as one of them. And indeed, this committee has the bona fides. Amy Klobuchar was on this committee. Rob Portman was on this committee. Roy Blunt was on this committee. Some fairly big names in the world of the Senate. So if this explains a lot to the people, what is the national appetite to have a steadier drumbeat of similar investigations? What is the national appetite to have this particular issue become a democratic Benghazi? You know, where it's, it's, you know, day after day after day after day after cable hit after cable hit after cable hit after column after hot take after news article about these hearings. How much does Nancy Pelosi want to put the pedal to the metal on it? I do think that there is a reasonable room to investigate at the very least, you know, communications between people that were inside the Capitol and sitting politicians, including Paul Gozar, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, and Donald Trump. Like, I don't think that that's totally unreasonable to to, uh, look into. But how long you do it and how loud you do it is really what I want all you guys to watch. Because this is good information that came out. And at least as I've seen today, it hasn't exactly ripped through the news. Which to me might indicate that the national appetite for this as an actual logistical question that we want to solve might not quite be as deep as some would hope. But then again, once you get into did somebody on the other team do a bad thing, that's when ears tend to perk up. In New York! New York's actually going to have a big, uh, a mega concert that is uh, uh, happening in the summer. Uh, Eight acts, allegedly, are going to be there in the Central Park lawn. We were trying to book this on on the Twitch stream the other day where I, I was I was trying to figure out Billy Joel's got to be there. Like I was thinking like it's got to be like three current acts or semi-current acts. Somebody who's had like a big hit over the last five years. A couple legacy acts and and there I would I would say, you know, you're looking at. Uh, Joel. Paul Simon, like that kind of stuff. And then like maybe like a big megastar, like Lady Gaga or or Taylor Swift or something like that. They would all kind of have to be New York acts. Jay-Z, Jay-Z and P. Diddy would probably be the only rap acts I could see on there. Anyway, I'm 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 I've been thinking about New York lately. Think about New York because we're gonna be heading out there to cover this mayoral race, and it is indeed heating up. A new poll from New York One puts former New York Police Department officer and current Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams in the lead by six points. Although those results do not include the final in-person debate amongst all eight candidates last week. 
Respondents to the poll, by the way, listed public safety as the number one issue they care about. And that is kind of a obvious, uh, an, an obvious result, considering that the other front runner in this race, Andrew Yang and his rival Adams, spent most of that in-person debate talking about how they would both beef up the police department and get businesses on their feet. Like, make no mistake, both these guys, if they're talking about tough on crime, small business friendly, you know, this is not a very progressive leaning election right now. Which brings us back to Adams. He took aim over the weekend at surging progressive candidate, Maya Wiley, who was, uh, uh, I think, just into the 10% range in that latest poll. Wiley nabbed an endorsement from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren over the weekend. Adams slammed uh, both women, specifically uh, AOC and Wiley, as being soft on crime and putting, quote, slogans and politics in front of public safety. This is basically Eric Adams saying, I am the anti-defund the police candidate. When you are talking about putting slogans in front of public safety, you are talking about defund the police. There's no other slogan that you'd be talking about. Maya Wiley is somebody that indeed, as part of her policies, wants to eliminate incoming cadet classes and move that budgetary funding to other elements that she believes will better the New York City community. Eric Adams and Andrew Yang want the opposite. More cadets, more money, and possibly the return of some fairly controversial plain clothes policing tactics. And so, Wiley has answered fire at Adams, calling the man the worst thing you can say to a Democratic primary candidate. You're a Republican. And, again, Yang and Adams are Proud centrists on this, and at least according to the, the the data in these polls, I can see why. One of the biggest questions that I've asked about this New York City race, specifically if we were we are looking at any kind of national implications that you can pull from it, is if we're looking at a nationwide surge in crime, is the defund the police movement? already a loser. Because if it ain't going to work in New York City, is it going to work in any other city? If defund the police could make it there, they could make it anywhere. But right now, it does not seem that a, a city that has seen a, a rapid rise in shooting and violent crime wants to to talk about giving their police officers less resources or at least and this is something that I've always said about about defund the police is that you have to lead with the solutions and not the problems so you have to make the argument not defund the police but fund the blank we need funding for blank blank gets results blank does this so whatever it is that 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 uh, Maya Wiley has in her plan whether it's uh, peace officers or social workers or whatever, whatever your solution is. You got to sell that. You can't sell people on the idea that we're going to punish the thing you don't like, especially if not everybody believes that the thing you don't like is all that bad. Let's go back to the fact that AOC and Elizabeth Warren jumped into this race, though, with endorsements. Because it makes me wonder about something else. Is there a big endorsement for Andrew Yang 
in the next two weeks. A reminder that early voting begins on Saturday. So if you wanted to optimally time the announcement of an endorsement, or at least leaking an endorsement, and then have a a big event sometime while people can go right to the polls afterward, now's about when you'd probably leak it. Now, I, I say that I wonder if Yang will get a big endorsement because he's played the good soldier since his insurgent candidacy. He stepped out early. A reminder, he he dropped out in New Hampshire. And he probably could have uh, gone to Vegas. He could have gone to South Carolina. But he didn't. Took a CNN job. Did a good job plugging everybody uh, as uh, as things were going along. He has not uh, fought on ideological lines with other candidates during that 2020 race. And then... He moved down to Georgia to help knock on doors for Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. So, let's start there. Can we expect an endorsement from either Warnock or Ossoff? If we're talking about Georgia voices, what about Stacey Abrams? And then let's look at Yang's past as a presidential candidate and the fact that he was fairly friendly with some other folks. Would a Secretary Pete endorsement during Pride Month do something for Yang? Maybe he and Kamala Harris can bury the hatchet and laugh together as she says that he's the next mayor of New York. Or let's dream a little bit bigger. We cut the malarkey, and the big man, Joe Biden, blesses his one-time primary rival. A reminder that Biden would name-check Yang during some of his speeches, pointing out that he indeed believed that we are in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. He liked the cut of Yang's jib. Will Biden offer an endorsement in New York City? Keep an eye on that this week. Folks, we are about two weeks away from me heading out of here, leaving the Lone Star State of Texas and heading on up to New York City. It's going to be a great time. We are going to go see some Eric Adams stuff, go see some Yang stuff, go see some Garcia stuff, go see some Wiley stuff, maybe even a little Stringer. I don't know if we'll have time. I'll be I'll be, I'll be getting all out through the five boroughs. I don't know if I'll make a set. But we'll have a meetup. It's going to be a great time. Guys, in the history of this show, there have been certain inflection points where I know what you guys want. How I can create the content that you guys reward. And one of the surest ways to do it is to get up off my duff and go somewhere where you can know for sure that what I am gathering, what I am recording, is what I am seeing. If you trust my perspective, then you're going to trust my perspective when I am boots on the ground. And I'm talking about the crowds. I'm talking about the energy. I'm talking about how the candidates are holding up, how they're delivering their speeches, whether or not they feel confident or whether or not they know that this just isn't their day. It's the kind of stuff that you can't really tell, certainly on mainstream media and really even in YouTube. You gotta be there, and I'll be there for you. If you want to support that kind of journalism, there's one place where you go. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That's where you support our Patreon, and you're going to get something for your money. The $3 level gets you both the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday PX3 Extra. That comes out at midnight. 
on Monday morning wherein I look through the Sunday shows that happen this week, Meet the Press, Fox News Sunday. I see the guests, I see what their topics are, and I divine for you the subjects and narratives that will define the week. There was a doozy of a smoke screen on Tuesday, or on, on, on this Sunday's. Holy smokes. Meanwhile, you also get the late edition. It is the latest podcast that is uh, uh, that covers the latest news of the week because our Friday show is produced earlier in the week. But if you want the latest take on things that happen through Thursday, well, the only place to get it is take politics seriously. Sign up at the three dollar level. Thank you to everybody who supports us. It is greatly appreciated. Take politics seriously. Right now, literally, as we speak, campaigns are being formed for elections this month, this year, into the midterms, and possibly even 2024. People are finding the time to volunteer, possibly be hired, and to make a difference in public service. But as we say often on this show, It's all just a noble write-off unless you win. How do you train an army of well-meaning volunteers into a winning political hit squad? To answer, we speak to the author of Modern Political Campaigns, How Technology, Professionalism, and Speed Have Revolutionized Elections, and the CEO of the Cohen Research Group, Michael Cohen, joins the show. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks for having me. In your and Justin, book, we know each other long enough that you could call me Mike or you could call me MC, whatever you want. <laughs> let's go with MC because uh, I, 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 yeah, I, much better. I'm, I'm sure you, you're probably much like that character in in Office Space, uh, who's also named Michael Bolton. That like you're not that oh, Michael yeah. Cohen that's involved in politics, but also why would you change your name? He's the one that sucks. Exactly. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've told people that, Justin, on my Twitter feed in particular. I have the OG Michael Cohen Twitter feed. And that, um, in retrospect, was a very bad idea. You should literally just pin like that, that clip from Office Space of like, why should I change my name? He's the one that sucks. That should just be your pin, your pin tweet. You know, I've done that before, but like it didn't stop Geraldo Rivera. It didn't stop. So you get the, the, the straight at replies. And silk. You, you get, oh, you yeah, get the straight yeah. at replies. That's what happens. Yeah. I woke up this morning. Apparently he was on last night. The other guy was on saying some stuff. And then, you know, something about a porn star payoff. And, oh, and, and there are days where I'll wake up, Justin, and I'll go, you know what? I'm game. Let's spend five minutes on this and reply to people with memes and stuff. And then there are days where I'm just like, block, go away, go, go away. away, please. I'm not that Michael Cohen, for God's yeah. sakes. It's uh, so funny, though. All right. Then MC will be the way we go for excellent from, from here. My good friends and, call and me as, that. As we said at, at the top, uh, Modern Political Campaigns is the new book. From your perspective, what has changed the most? In terms of technology, what has been the most impactful technology or technological change in campaigns? The layup is really social media, right? Because it's all how we communicate. It's all how, frankly, um, reporters engage with each other. And the best way to actually reach reporters now is through social media, not through email and not through traditional means. Um, so that's the layup. But the underneath guiding principle behind all of this is data. And it seems like it's a really boring topic, but the really important thing is is that we now know more about every single American, their likes, their dislikes, their voting patterns than ever before. And that's made campaigns incredibly more efficient. And what that allows campaigns to do is to save a ton of money, reach the people they think they can move, and then save all the other money for all the other mechanics of a campaign. So in reality, it's really data that's driving the revolution in uh, politics. So this is something that I find I find fascinating. I'm curious to talk to you more about because 
as anybody who's listened to this show knows, the 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 motto, if we were to write it in Latin on our crest, is is that the goal of politics is to get more people into a booth to press your button than the other guy does on a specific day. And to do that, you got to know who you're targeting. And, and this has been the history of this kind of data from buying magazine subscriptions uh, right. to, to target people to now. So lay out for me this. When does, uh, I guess, uh, the, the Obama campaign in 08 gets a lot of credit for... Uh, being the 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 forebearer of like Facebook data scra- uh, scraping, how has it evolved since then? That's a really great question, and it, what a lot of people miss is what you just picked up on, because right now, post twenty sixteen, when you're looking at Facebook, for example, you are getting a much narrower set of tools that you can use on Facebook to actually use your audiences. In other words, let's say someone comes to a rally. So let's pick Trump, for example. A lot of people come to a Trump rally. They take their names and addresses. They were usually were able to, before pre-16, um, the, you know, the, when the election was held, yeah. they were able to upload all those names, get a like audience, and then all of a sudden blast a lot of things out to people. After that, they got shelled. And so they've now narrowed the window on what you can use with it. But what you are now getting post Obama and post 16 is the idea of owned audiences. So if you have those email addresses, if you have those telephone numbers, if you know who they work, who they're friends with, who they work with, you can then build a campaign around all of that, which has nothing to do with social media and has everything to do with your ability to reach out to them via email, text, or phone call and through people that they already know. So it's become a much more efficient friends and family campaign than a mass media campaign through Facebook and other platforms. So I'm glad that you got there because post Cambridge Analytica, post Facebook getting, uh, you know, shelled because uh, uh, Trump won. And and there was also a lingering creep just in general outside of politics of people being nervous and weirded out by how much data was being collected. Uh, Sure. Now it feels like we're actually entering into a weirdly more stable uh, place where email, you know, I, I remember back back in the aughts, there used to be this thing said in text that uh, or in tech that the next billion dollar idea was the company that solved email. And we spent right. the next decade trying to solve email and all these experiments were very great. And then they became weird and then nobody liked them. And at the end of it, like like Thanos and Endgame, where did it bring us? Back to email. Back to Good email. old fashioned, <laughs> welcome unregulated home. email. Like like we now have this appreciation. But if we're talking about phone numbers, which we now keep forever because we're allowed to take them to other carriers, and email, which has stood the test of time at this point, are we now in kind of a, a very stable position? Unlike 08 through 2016 and and beyond, when we were bouncing around between, okay, uh, let's see how much data we can get from Facebook and how much from Twitter and and how much from from Snapchat or, or any of these emerging uh, uh, things. Is is the, the phone number email meta something that, that will likely stay around for, for a long time? Yeah, and based upon my experience, when I started about 25 years ago, I'm um, in grad school, um, I was working for the local um, phone shop on campus doing um, surveys. And the, the the nomenclature, the thing that really held it all together was that everyone had a phone number. And so you could always call somebody and do a survey. Now, there's a lot of technology on why we can't do that anymore, but you're right. What we're finding now is it's much easier to identify human beings because we now have their email addresses because we've spent about 10 years getting them. We now have your, you know, your phone number, we now know a lot about you. And so it's much more of a stable environment from which to run a campaign. You also have both parties have basically gotten to the point where they have understood what they can do and what they can't do. So neither party is really that far ahead. So there's much more stasis in the system. So what you're really looking at this, at this point is who can maximize what's going on within the system right now. And it gets all blown up in redistricting. And then they have to figure out, okay, well, where are the voters are? But the basics of the science of where we are right now is much more stable than, for example, when the, the earliest days of Facebook, when they were just trying to grow. And they said, oh, sure, you want to get in front of, you know, half a billion people? Sure. Come on over here. We'll, we'll, 
you yeah. know, give us a few email addresses and we'll make it happen for you. Now they realize, oh shit, you know, I don't really love going to Capitol Hill and explaining yes. myself. So uh, I, I'd rather not do that for a living and just make the whole bunch of money off of, you know, the Fortune 500 and other smaller long tail companies who are willing to give me ad money. The most fluid thing in modern campaigns from an outsider's perspective seems to be the explosive growth of small donations, that, that they have become an outsized part of how you fund a campaign. You can now fund a campaign effectively on like one viral tweet if it's if it's for the right audience that's going to start giving the right amount of money. How much of that is 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 really something that has changed the game? And is there any party that has a, a significant advantage in it between the Democrats and the Republicans from your perspective? Really good question. I think you really don't have one party doing better than another, but you do have specific people in those parties who are doing really well. So I, the obvious one is AOC. She's done a fantastic job of sort of building her own brand. And whenever she finds her way um, into a discussion, there's always money that's flooding to order. But on the right, you find people like Dan Crenshaw, you know, who has more followers than he has constituents. You know, he, yeah. he makes more money um, in between campaigns, you know, by being Dan Crenshaw, you know, with the eye patch badass jumping out of a plane than he is, you know, you know, Crenshaw, um, you know, going ahead and passing a single bill. So yeah. those things, those things are much more fluid because you now have the opportunity to be an entrepreneur within the political system, as opposed to, oh, well, I have to wait until I have enough, um, you know, time on the, on the block before I can go ahead and say something. Now you show up and immediately you can go and say whatever you want. And especially if you have a defined character, I, I would feel like if, if we're going to find a common thread between the two of them, you know, the, the AOC bartender, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of archetype is something that is very understandable, young, uh, relatable to a different audience. Crenshaw, war hero with the eye patch so you you will never forget the fact that he has military service like and and also he's doing uh, avengers knockoff youtube videos where he's somersaulting out of a plane and stuff like that like that, which are incredibly the, high well produced and they're funny oh, yeah. and 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 same thing with aoc like you know her content comes down as real and so like you said you know if i can throw five ten fifteen dollars at a campaign even if it's not somebody that represents me you know, if I feel some kind of connection with this person, you know, you'll go ahead and invest because it's not a lot of money. And you and you scale enough of that through the internet and through all the other pieces of technology that, you know, we cover in the book, then you can actually run a campaign as opposed to, well, I only have, you know, this certain little piece of, you know, New York or this certain little piece of Texas or even Kansas. You can actually run a real campaign based upon you as opposed to where you are from. Is part of this also just the nationalization? of candidates because, you know, uh, four years ago during the midterms in 2018, when I was living in, in Oakland, I saw as many Beto signs as I did in, in, in Oakland, as I do now in 2021, living in Austin, Texas, where there still are some Beto signs out there. Like, like there was a <laughs> nationalization of that race because Ted Cruz was somebody that Democrats specifically in the Bay area really, really hated. And Beto seemed like the young, fresh face that should be in, in ascendancy is, is the small donor, the, the small donation and the ease of these mobile apps really nationalizing the ability for people to monetize these races? Yeah. I mean, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, is that because the parties are so closely divided, particularly in Congress and so efficient on the local level, you know, if I am a strong D Democrat and I decide, okay, I want to go out and I want to make a big difference. Well, I can just take care of my own area, but what really matters to me is the balance of power in Washington you can then go ahead and invest in that. And the parties are really, really good right now of not only identifying local donors, but nationalizing them as well. And then giving you people to root for because the, the candidates themselves are much more compelling and there's all the incentives in the world for them to be more interesting. Let me talk about uh, uh, your book, which includes a lot of interviews with uh, a bunch of folks who have run 
uh, big campaigns, including for John McCain and Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, in all of the conversations that you had with with the people that are really putting together the X's and O's of this campaign, what are some of the memorable uh, uh, stories or lessons that you got? I think one of the biggest lessons that you get is that people go into working on campaigns and, and don't know specifically what they want to do. So all of these people who are highly successful, who ended up being you know, experts at polling or media or other kinds of different you know, pieces of campaigns, just joined a campaign and just jumped on. And what yeah. people don't really realize is that you know, to go and work on a campaign is actually fairly simple. You just go to the campaign office and you volunteer. And what really happens is, and this was sort of a common theme throughout everyone I spoke with, is you just work on one. And then before you know it, within a month or two, you have a job. Because campaigns are extremely efficient at figuring out who the people are who can get stuff done. And then as you're working on campaigns, you then discover what you really like to do. So like, for example, when I worked on campaigns on the West Coast of Florida in 1996, I had no idea I would go into polling. Um, but what happened during the campaign that I was working on was, is that there was a candidate of mine, Nancy Argenziano, who I couldn't get the ear of the party. Um, but the, we got great polling that showed that she was trending up. And so we were able to actually make the argument to the party that it was worthwhile for them to invest in this small, you know, House of Representatives um, seat um, on the West Coast of Florida for the Florida legislature. And she won. And the reason why that was important was is because it flipped the um, the balance of power in uh, for the to the GOP for the first time since Reconstruction, and then fast forward to 2000, it goes to the legislature, Bush v. Gore, and it matters. So yeah, a lot of things that you end up doing, you don't realize in the moment what you're learning or what you're doing, but if you just are interested in politics, just jump on a campaign, get involved in something that you really care about. And then from there, you'll figure out what you would want to, you know, do for the future or just say, hey, that was a great experience and I could move on. You know, it seems like a tremendously chaotic situation. Like, like <laughs> if, if you look at what especially now where you've got crazy money that happens really, 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 really fast in some of these races. And and like you said, you're taking all comers. Anybody who wants to, uh, you know, have a shovel, they can keep digging with everybody else. But but these things exactly. staff up really fast. They move around really fast. You know, especially when we're talking about you know presidential, even fringy presidential races. You're, you're talking about multi-state operations. Uh, is there any? Uh, uh, I mean, I guess like is there is there any way that in, in the conversations you've had or your experience that this can be done better or, or worse, like any, uh, like, like what, what, what is the most important role to make sure that this evolving solar system starts getting built the right way? Well, first of all, they are chaotic and they're like the ultimate startup, right? So you, you go from zero to November and yeah. then you're done. Then you're done. Then it's over, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, so, and by the way, you don't make money. You the money comes in, but but that's that's you know no, you were just the money comes in money. and it flows yeah. out. Yeah, and it goes right. It's out. like it, It's like an S corp. The money flows through, but it doesn't really stay there, right? It's no. gone, right? Yeah. Well, I I think you know to your question, what really comes down to is this: is that it's sort of the professionalization part of that subtitle in that book that, that caught your eye is that the people who are actually getting into this as a job, so not at the front end of it, but let's say you've had a couple of people who've worked in this you know, for a number of years. Sometimes they've gotten some very good training from the state parties, maybe even the federal parties. You may even have gotten um, a degree in it. So now there are actual degrees that you can get you know, at GW, at University of Florida and elsewhere, where you can really study the nuts and bolts of campaigns and get a credential to actually go out and do these kinds of things. So you, you get management, you get politics, you get all these kinds of things to professionalize the business. And so when they're in positions of running campaigns, they then know what to look for, and then they know what, you know what to tap along the way. The other thing that I would say is this, is that a lot of these folks who are running campaigns or serving in really high positions, they are consultants by nature. So after this, they have figured out a way to port all of those great abilities that they've used, you know, in this short span of time to help out 
public affairs you know, groups to help out Fortune 500 companies. You know, that's one of the reasons why a lot of the, the polling shops and a lot of the consulting firms, they do really well in off years is because they know when they hire people who have worked on campaigns, they're going to be fast. They know they've got to be right. And they're going to bust their ass for you because they know what a crucible a campaign is. And so, gosh, you know, it's like downshifting to work for a Fortune 500 company compared to like a state house <laughs> campaign, you know. And so to a real extent, like that allows you to then refine your craft in the off years and then come back with more information on how you can best serve your clients on the on years. So there's a professionalization piece of this that's actually very interesting. I got a question about the the, the tribalism of of campaigns because it it does appear that obviously at the high level in in when you're talking about the people that become kind of famous for running campaigns they become famous for exclusively running Republican campaigns or Democratic campaigns. But I would imagine that on 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 the lower level, when you're when you're doing the like, hey, anybody who wants to be a part of this can be a part of this. You're probably going to get a little bit more of a mixture if somebody is really good at doing the skills that you need in any campaign, including phone banking or canvassing or or organizing those kind of things. When we get below the bold face names, is there a lot of churn between parties or or is that also separated? It is probably more separate than you would imagine. But what's really neat, though, is that the people who are sort of first timers, most of those people, if they're working on their camp on a campaign for the first time, they may just be working on it because they know this person. You know, their kids might play soccer together. You know, they might serve on the PTA together. They might just be friends. And so some of this stuff on the particularly on the local level is non is less partisan than, like you said, the bold face type candidates at the congressional level or the federal level, or even at the high state levels, you know, statewide. So what that allows is that for these people to sort of come up through the system and see, you know, where do they feel really comfortable and then decide whether or not that they're going to come back or not. But then it's probably about, you know, a quarter of people on the state and local level that are just, you know, hey, I'm here to help out somebody I know. You know, yeah. I, I believe in this person as opposed to I believe in a set of principles that are rock solid and that's it. I mean, even in this time right now, Justin, I've you know, listened to your podcast a bunch of times and, you know, there's a lot of movement between the parties on what the parties stand for. Yeah. So for a while, you know, you and I growing up, Republicans were all rock solid on, you know, small government, less spending. Now, you know, that's kind of out the window. Right. Yeah. And so. You know, there's a lot of things that are going back and forth on policy. So now it really comes down to who do you identify with and who do you support, particularly on the local level. What do you think is the biggest uh, misconception about campaigns from the outside as somebody who wrote the book explaining how they really work? I think the biggest misconception is, is that everyone who works for a campaign is kind of a dick. <laughs> like that's not the way this, like that, that that's not really how this works. <laughs> like, yeah. like most of the people get involved in politics and run for offices are not those people. They really do care about their communities. They care enough to go through this crazy system of election, primaries, media, all the kinds of things that most normal human beings a shouldn't want to do and B decide not to because they they're you know fully formed human beings. So anyway, people who actually go ahead and do this really do care. And they're not looking at it from the perspective of like, well, how can I, you know, solve my own personal issues or yeah. how can I, you know, become a media star? Most people actually do care when they work on a campaign and when they run. And so the, just the rampant cynicism that I see everywhere, even sometimes in my own courses, is really kind of sad because most of the people who are trying to get help someone get elected or even get elected themselves are really doing it for the right reasons. At least in their own, between their own ears, like like they're, they're, we should, we yeah. should not as, 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 as cynical as, and I, I've been accused of being, bit of a cynic in my time, but, uh, uh, that that there are, um, you're saying that, that by and large, it, it would be the exception to the rule. If somebody was just a total steel eyed sociopath who only wanted power or money. Right. Right. And so, you know, the, the problem is, is that you, when you see these people through the media filter, 
they're very different than when you're with them one-on-one. So for example, I was working at um, a firm and we were working with somebody who had worked with Trump and was very high profile. I won't embarrass the guy. Sure. Um, but we sat, we sat around a table and it was confidential and we were talking about something that had to do with healthcare. And I remember thinking when I walked into the room that this guy was just the ultimate jerk and there was no way I was going to enjoy talking to him. There was, he was obviously going to hog the meeting and everything else. He sat there. He was very deliberate. He you know, engaged everybody. He actually remembered something personal about me afterwards at, at the end, which I thought was really remarkable. And so it was just, it was, what you don't see is the sort of behind the, you know, the media filter people that most of the time, they're not the people that you're trying to see. So like, even like a guy like Ted Cruz, you know, I have it on good authority that he's actually a guy who really cares about his family. So like going down to, you know, Mexico. That little trip yeah, to Mexico, yeah. to, to Cancun, that was not really the whole story. Now, he didn't want to throw anyone in his family under the bus. And so, like, you know, this, it's a, things are a lot more complicated than you would imagine. And, I, and the same thing with AOC. Like, if you got to know her, you'd probably find her, you know, to be a good friend or whatever. But, you know, seeing through the media filter, you know, you might have a different perception of her. Right. She might be somebody who's you know, too far out there on social media for your taste sure. or something. But, you know, we, 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 you said the phrase media filter and certainly I have, I've done my fair share of criticizing the media, but part of running a successful campaign is creating a bit of a 2d image of your candidate, right? Like you want right. exactly what you want people to see. And so if Ted Cruz is the fighting warrior of the, 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 the Republican causes, then they're not going to, uh, you know, uh, talk about how he's friends with his, you know, gay neighbor or something like that, or, or some element <laughs> that would make him more yeah. of a, yeah, of a, a, a 3d character. Uh, so, so part of this is by design in the political sphere, right? Right. It does what it says on the box, right? I mean, so yeah. you, yeah, right. Yeah. So to a certain extent, everyone understands a couple of things. Number one, there's really no room for nuance, particularly on social media and sometimes in, you know, basic media. Um, but also they understand that they're, they're upset about it, right? So on the one hand, they understand that they have to be a certain thing to be successful. And then on the other hand, they're, they're looking at it and going, but that's not me. So it's, it's a very interesting tension between one and another that I think is, um, you know, it's worse now because we're able to get it out to more people quicker, but it's not different. You know, so for example, if you wanted to look back at, you know, Jimmy Carter, who was probably one of the worst presidents I ever had to live through. And I, cause I remember growing up and there was the gas lines and hyperinflation, all the other things and the hostages in Iran, you know, he leaves the presidency and has the best presidency of all time. So is he always that guy? Or is he always the other guy? Right. Yeah. And so we, we just don't know, but you're right. It's not like they're blameless. I mean, they're, they're playing this game. It's just that you find behind closed doors, the grumpy about it. I only imagine that it's probably some level of psychological torture, right? <laughs> like, you know, to, to kind of just be this, uh, I mean, and, and I know people always get them, get on my, case whenever I compare politics to professional wrestling, but it, it at least sometimes professional wrestlers can say, Hey, I, I don't actually, I didn't actually bury somebody alive on Sunday. Like it was, it was, right. a, it was a performance. It was like, a like Ted, show. Right. Yeah. Every yeah. time Ted Cruz walks into an HEB and somebody talks to him, he's got to be Ted Cruz from Fox news. He can't be Ted Cruz from, from the, the, the other thing. No, maybe with you, maybe with somebody inside his campaign, he can have a little bit more of a nuanced conversation, but anytime he's in the public eye, he's kind of got to be that mascot. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because that has, not only is that what works for him, but that's what people expect of him. So for him yeah. to be anywhere different, you know, he's off his own brand, right? Yeah. The hardest thing in any kind of campaign, whether it's for, you know, serial or for a candidate is really branding, right? To sort of capture the imagination of people so that they know who you are or who you want them to think you are. And so that they'll buy you or support you, right? And so to go off brand is actually more dysfunctional in that situation than functional, you know? And the other thing too, is like you'll find this with some candidates and you'll find it with professional athletes too that they'll talk about themselves in the third person. It's sort of a tell. Yes. Like if they talk about themselves in the third person, it's because they know they're talking to someone they don't know 
This is a branding situation. So, you know, I'm Mike Cohen talking about Mike Cohen's book, right? Yeah. Instead of, well, I'm Mike Cohen and what am I going to do today? I'm going to have like a bacon turkey club that I make with my own hands at home. I'm not talking with Justin every day. Although I, sure. you know, I, although I appreciate Justin, I'd like to see him. Well, I, I, and, I, yeah. and I appreciate you, MC. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right, man, I'll, I'll tell you what, I can actually keep going uh, uh, with you in terms of, of just talking about campaigns in, in, in the past. Here, you want to know what here? I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll, let me ask you one campaign question about uh, uh, 2020. Sure. What do you think was, uh, uh, you know, the biggest kind of uh, mistakes by both sides? By, by, by the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign from your outsider perspective, knowing how these these systems work? Sure. I mean, the biggest campaign mistake by the Trump team was going after absentee ballots. There's no good reason why Republicans who have basically dominated Florida on absentee ballots would somehow, some way say that that's not a good thing. They're good at it. They've been great at it. I mean, I when I worked on campaigns particularly in Florida. I mean, they're fantastic at it. So the idea that you would say, okay, I'm going to take one of these away because somehow some way that's good for me is terrible, terrible idea. On the Biden side, what I would say is, is this, their biggest mistake was not branding Joe Biden as the dude from his basement all day, all night in stereo. There, was, there could have been ways for him to be more engaged with people as opposed to just staying home. Part of that was because you were dealing with Joe Biden, you know, who, if he had gotten coronavirus, might've had a different result than yeah. like Donald Trump did when he got it. Um, but you could have had him out more in the community. You could have had him separated from people. They didn't do enough of that. And so it gave a sense that he was sort of bunkered up. And so to a real extent, they were it fed into the idea that he wasn't... Um, you know, active enough. He wasn't ready enough. They were sort of putting him in a bubble because they were worried about what he would say. And so there were things like that around the edges. Now, on the flip side, Trump was fairly committed and still is to saying that the election, if he loses, it was fake. Right. Yeah. So he had to say there was something wrong with the system. And so he picked on the ballots and Biden had to say that um, the virus is real and we're taking it seriously. So he had to stay away from rallies. So on both ends, there were sort of things that they were dealing with that they made choices on. But I can see that each one of those kind of hurt their upside. So Biden, for example, walks into the White House without a lot underneath him, right? He, he, he almost lost the House and he barely won the Senate. If he had been out there more for other candidates, he might have brought yeah. a few more of them along and he just didn't do it. I, you mentioned that you listened to this show in, in, in the past. I don't know if you listened through, through 2020 when I was crushing what I called Haida Biden, but I am now so thrilled. So anybody who wrote me <laughs> a, a email about how I was stupid for criticizing Haida Biden and I should no, apologize no. for doing it. Well, you can all suck it because MC, my new best friend, came on. That's right, Justin. his book, <laughs> Modern Political Campaigns, How Professionalism, Technology, and Speed of Revolutionized Elections which is going to be out soon. Uh, and he backed me up and I couldn't be happier about it. Uh, uh, MC, thank you so much for coming on. And, and I would love to, to have you back on just to, just to nerd out about, about more specifics of, 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 of elections gone by. Thanks, Justin. And by the way, nerd is my brand. So I'm all in. <laughs> Politics, politics, politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Guys, this is a big one. If you want to thank Michael Cohen for taking time out of his day to be on this show, head on over to px3guest.com, head on over to his Twitter, and thank him. Twitter is a lonely, awful hellscape. And any unsolicited compliment that comes your way for anything is always remembered. Show that we have the best audience in the world of political podcasting by heading on over to px3guest.com. And if you liked what Michael had to say, let him know that you enjoyed him. If you want to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live.com. Change our schedule, by the way. We got a Monday, 
Wednesday, and Friday schedule going forward. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. Our podcast is px3podcast.com. And our merch is available at politicsmerch.com. Including our COVID shots equals body shots, tank tops, masks, and t-shirts. Summer is right around the corner. Went for my run this morning. Damn near 80 degrees at the crack of dawn. Gonna be a sizzler, folks. You're gonna need those tank tops, politicsmerch.com. One last thing before we get into other ways that you can support the show. There is a project that I've been working on with Dog and Pony Show Audio and Brian Brushwood, my co host on the Night Attack program. He was also with us every week during our amendment bracket. It's quite possibly the best thing I've ever worked on. It is coming out soon. And you can get the first six minutes if you sign up for a mailing list that will be solely dedicated to that project. YOLO420.com slash new secret. Y-O-L-O, number four, number two, number zero, dot com, slash new, N-E-W, secret, S-E-C-R-E-T. You just sign up for that mailing list, and once you've signed up for it, the the landing page that tells you you've successfully done it will give you the link to the first six minutes. And I'll tell you what, if you're not into it, If you're not into it based on those first six minutes, then, well, you know, it it just ain't for you. Not everything's for everyone. But I I will say, if you like this show and you like my production and you like Raise the Dead, I don't see how you're not going to like it. All right. If you want to support us directly on the program, you can give us a one-time donation at PayPal dot me slash pay jury p-a-y-j-u-r-y our cash app is px3 cash and our venmo is justin dash young dash 20 shout out to scott abeldinger who hit me up with a dollar and 10 cents and just said that it was adjusted for inflation you can also send me physical monies or checks or anything else that you'd like to send me physically in the mail to P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. And of course, if you want our bonus content, you can always get it at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts for, per week. Our Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show, which will be the first podcast that you listen to to begin your podcasting week and the late edition on Thursday. Uh, All you got to do is head on over there and sign up at the $3 level, but it is at the $10 level that you get your name read at the end of the podcast. Like these fine folks in the Titanic $10 tier. Names like Headphones Neil, Dr. G, The Other Half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, The Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy, Mag, Zombie, Doc, D, Really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle Age Mike, Dotcom Junkie, Calamity Zab, D, Laser, Lord Scale, De Quince, and Neely the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. The Utah Jimmy Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies of Route 44. Charles, David, Olin, and Angela. Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, D Laser, Just Another Pilot, Will, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name read, that's how it happens. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. We're going to get into journalism on Friday. 
We got an interview about a com law case. I swear to God, I'm going to I'm going to keep getting super journalism nerdy with y'all until you tell me that it's too nerdy. But this I don't think will be it because it's really, really fascinating. It's a case being brought by Sarah Palin against the New York Times for an editorial they wrote. It'll really give you a great sense of the of the really fascinating and and uh, uh, robust but high stakes world of libel law and whether or not uh, this particular case, which was not a great moment for the New York Times, is enough to land them uh, a, a judgment against them. But we'll talk about all that on Friday. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying. Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares talk about Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.